Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. We are welcoming Whitney Ross from the Irene Goodman Literary Agency here today. Whitney, we're so glad to have you. Glad to be here. Before joining Irene Goodman in 2018, Whitney worked as an editor at Macmillan for nearly a decade, coming in her role as a senior editor for Teen, Tor, Tor, and Forge. Over the course of her career, Whitney has had the pleasure of editing many talented authors, including Dan Wells, Katie McGarry, Stephen Erickson, and more. She represents middle grade, young adult, and adult fiction of all genres with an emphasis on historical, sci-fi, fantasy, romance, and contemporary fiction. That is awesome. Glad you guys think it's awesome too. (laughs) So why don't you take us back to when you were first starting as an editor? What was going on in your life at the time? How did you choose? What was it like? Oh gosh. Well, so I actually had no idea that publishing was a thing. I was a huge reader growing up, read nonstop. And yet it never even occurred to me that people made these books that I love to read so much. So I actually started off with a entrepreneurship major in college because I thought that was more practical. I didn't think that there was anything I could do with my English major. Um, and then halfway through, I realized that most business just didn't interest me in the way that I thought it would. And so I added that English major back in. And one of my professors actually said just one day, hey, have you thought about publishing? And it was like the light bulb went off. I started pulling all these books off my bookshelves and looking through and seeing who published them. And at the time, so many of the books that I really, really loved were published by Tor. So Mm. I literally sat there and was like, all right, I'm going to try to work at Tor. So I applied to a bunch of different grad school programs. I ended up going to NYU to get my master's in publishing, which if you're trying to break break into publishing and are listening to this, you do not have to have a master's in publishing to work in publishing, not at all. But I really wanted the opportunity to learn some more, and it was a good way to move to New York and to get my master's and to break into the industry um, and to meet people. So I did that, moved to New York, and I worked at Borders. And then I also interned at what's now New Leaf Literary Agency um, with Joanna Volpe and Susie Townsend and I were co-interns at the time. So that was a fun memory. And then I actually, a job opened up at Tor for an editorial assistant. So I applied for that job, got it. And then I worked my way up to senior editor, working with a number of really great authors, YA, adults. YA was um, Cora Carmack and Susan Dennard and some just really awesome people and then decided to make the switch to agenting for a new challenge. So here I am today. You make it sound so easy. I just... (laughs) So I have a few questions, actually. Let's unpack a few things you just said. First of all, let's talk about the the master's in publishing and what it is and why some people get it and why you don't need it. Oh, okay. I wouldn't say that you don't need it. You definitely don't need it to be in the industry at all, but it is a useful degree. I learned a lot about accounting and finance and just perspective about uh, different areas and different departments, sales, 
versus editorial, um, marketing, publicity, and things. So just hearing from the professors who worked at a variety of different publishing houses about their experience at the publishing houses was invaluable because I worked at Macmillan for 10 years. So that perspective of the way other publishing houses worked was useful, but definitely not required. Um, there's a number of other ways that you can break into the industry and, and you really do learn on the job. It is amazing how much you can learn just through osmosis. I know that I was very surprised to find that I did know things I didn't know that I knew as soon as um, people started asking me questions. So it is very nice that it's not an industry where you have to get a specific degree. Um, I think a lot of people break in with a bachelor in English of some kind. Yeah. And you can break in with really any major. I hired a number of people in my day and the main thing, the most important thing that I would ask in the course of the interview was, who do you like to read? Nice. Because at the end of the day, reading and the love of reading is the most important part, um, particularly if you're going to work in editorial. So if people answered and said they liked Stephen King and James Patterson, I was like, well, that's great. But everybody likes them. That's kind of a, a very, those are incredibly popular authors. Like who else do you like? That's not someone that is hitting the New York times list number one, every time, you know, who's, um, a little more obscure, who just, just some people to show that you read widely beyond the general population. Kind of like how we don't want you to compare your book to Harry Potter. Or eat exactly. Love. Those are, that's kind of the general ones. It's like, those are unreachable. Or if you say your favorite author is Hemingway, Oof. awesome. But who do you read in the contemporary? You don't have to impress anyone in the interview. Just tell us who you really like. I can't get over that he actually says his cat is an excellent babysitter. <laughs> that is a classic. <laughs> he put his cat in the crib and went away. And I'm like, what? Okay. Well, if the cat had six toes, it can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, statement of motherhood. Um, Whitney, also, you mentioned working your way up to executive editor. Could you talk a little about the different levels that editors go through? Yeah, so I can't vouch for every publishing house, but it's mostly the same across the board. You start off as an editorial assistant. You work your way up to assistant editor, associate editor, editor, senior editor, and then way down the line, eventually, maybe executive editor. Um, but kind of the way it is structured is that an editorial assistant and an assistant editor will work mostly on the projects of the people that they're assisting. And then as you move up, the balance of your workload gradually switches so that you're working mostly on your own stuff and less on assisting until you're entirely on your own. So by the time you reach editor, you shouldn't be assisting at all and most likely, and you would have your own list, senior editor, your own assistant, and it kind of goes from there. I mean, obviously the lines can get blurred just depending on what's going in the publishing house and how it's structured, but that's generally how it works. But if an editorial assistant wants to acquire your book, to acquire your book, that is really no different than any other level. They can absolutely do that. Your book may still get a ton of attention and um, a ton done for it based on the pitch and the interest and the level of popularity for the topic. So any number of those levels can be a really great acquisitions editor. You know, it's so interesting. I don't think I've ever thought about the levels, like like how you just described them. And And as you were talking, I was like, wow, you know, the care that's taken in this industry to get the experience that you need to really put out an effective book is 
is pretty profound. I mean, like you don't just jump in and like, wah, I'm here. It's a very much a, an apprenticeship gig. You really learn on the job. You learn um, by editing along with the people above you and learning how they edit and how they work and kind of pulling bits and pieces to make your own style. So it really is. That's why you don't have to have a master's to be able to work in it. You learn very much on the job. Um, I don't use my master's very often. (laughs) (laughs) Neither do I. (laughs) I'd love to know how many people do use their master's all the time, unless you're in like engineering. I don't know. I think it's more of a statement on a paper, isn't it? No one's it sorry is. they've done it. No one's sorry they've done it. So Whitney, tell us, tell us about not working. Like who are you when you're not working? You know, I, I have so many different little hobbies, but one thing that I'm really loving right now is I love to bake. That's mm. my relaxing time. And I think when you have a book, a, a job that is so often involved with reading and stories and all of that, then you tend to find like some some other areas of relaxing that doesn't involve that. So my husband is South African, so I make rusks for him, which are kind of like a softer biscotti that you have every morning with coffee. It's a really mm. nice ritual. So I make those, I make muffins. And I don't know if anyone has discovered the New York Times recipe for chocolate chip cookies. Ooh. You no. use two different kinds of flour, very dark chocolate, and then you refrigerate the dough for 36 hours. What? It is delicious. It's serious. Why do you refrigerate it for that long? Because it makes the flavors all meld together and it kind of makes it a little bit more just caramelized almost in a flavor when it comes out. It's delicious. What kind of flour? Cake flour and bread flour. You mix the two. Wow. So do you want to hear my, my chocolate chip cookie hint? Yes. So I was out of vanilla once. And so I used Bailey's Irish cream and it was was quite delicious in case you're ever there. You know, I was like, I wonder if this would work. And I I was, people are like, what did you do? I'm like, nothing. (laughs) I'm going to have to try that because I literally ran out of vanilla last night making these cookies and I had to run around to get some. Yeah, try it. It's a little different. It's good. And I thought I was going to be clever by being like, just use almond extract. But if you put that in anything, it's fantastic. It'll cover almond. It covers up the flavor of cake mix. So if you throw it into a cake, people will think it's homemade. (laughs) Little did you know this was a food podcast, guys. I know. know. All the tips you're getting. Food, books, same thing. Yeah. (laughs) And it's winter so, there, yeah, right? It's winter where I am, so I do lots of, like, home cooking and warm things like curries and things like that. But beyond that, I spend time with friends. I am a huge fan of design blogs, so I read a lot of those. And I also do Pilates and I run if I'm feeling motivated, which I'm not going to lie, has not been in all in the last two weeks. So <laughs> hopefully I can get back on the wagon soon. I would love to see some of the design blogs. You like, I feel like there's got to be a way where I can just look at a link you send me and I can see all the visual stuff you like. Get on my Pinterest. I have so <laughs> many things pinned. Uh, but I really do. I, I love just, I just like enjoy it. It's just so relaxing and people have um, such lovely, beautiful images and inspiration to share. So it's, it's fun. I feel like there's so many weird fake things on Pinterest now. Like they're like, look at this amazing thing you can do with this thing that makes no sense. And you click on it and it's an ad. Have you seen those? Yeah, I avoid those. I do more just like, look at this beautiful kitchen with Navy cabinets. Mm. All about that. (laughs) 
Nice. I think particularly when you live in New York, you love to dream about the day when you may like actually be able to do something to a place that's not rental property. You know, um, New Yorkers, I, I can't believe this is something we all have in common. Like our rental market impacts our dream life, but a bunch of New Yorkers have the dream where suddenly there's a room they didn't know was in their apartment. <laughs> really? I've had it over and over and over again. And every time I'm like, this is so great. How did I not know this was here? And then I wake up and I'm like, oh. I have that dream all the time. There might, it must be something. We might need to research that. Like, and, the, and and when you open up the room, you're like, I, for me, it's a whole wing of the house and it stresses me out. Because <laughs> you have to clean it? Yeah, because it's like freaky. And I'm like, I could have had a party in here. <laughs> <laughs> I want to have this dream now that basically was my real life dream for <laughs> the 10 years I was in New York. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm sure some dream interpretation book would be like, there's a whole aspect of your brain you didn't even know was there. Look at your consciousness growing like that. Because houses are your consciousness, supposedly. The basements, like your subconscious, the attics, like all the higher stuff you should be accessing, but you're not because you're watching TV. I was going to say that I also get completely addicted to TV shows every once in a while. So at the moment, I'm trying to avoid an addiction and... Um, focus on everything else. So speaking of TV, we were chatting about Daria earlier. Let's talk about Daria for a minute. Oh yeah. We were just chatting about how Daria is back available and being rebooted. And that just brings you back to the day when Melissa Joan Hart starred in so many shows. (laughs) Daria was around. It was good times. Yeah. I saw one recently on Hulu and it is better than I remember. I can only hope that that's the case for the new Roswell TV show that they're rebooting. Have you heard of this? Oh, um, I remember the original Roswell. I thought it was cute that, like, her waitress uniform had an alien head as the apron. That show was awesome back in the day, and now they're rebooting it. So Roswell and Dark Angel are two shows that I think were before their time and underappreciated. So tell us, Whitney, universe, (laughs) with no publishing, what would you do? I'll probably work in some sort of design based on my love for the aforementioned design blogs. Like, would you do houses or? Interiors, probably, with houses. Um, Though I do have a couple friends who design shoes, and that does sound awesome. That does sound awesome. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, my one friend designed for Jessica Simpson for a while. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And she looks like Jessica Simpson, too, so it worked out great. (laughs) That sounds really stressful. (laughs) Do they have to do all kinds of complicated geometry to make, like, the angle that's under your foot comfortable? I don't know, but I feel like a lot of shoe companies are failing at that angle because I've yet to find heels that are comfortable. I know. I have a closet full of rejected black heels. I know. Well, in New York, you can't wear any because you'll have to walk around in them all day, and what's the point? Yeah, I know, but everybody wears them every day. It's such an awful paradox. I don't know. I'm wearing sneakers right now. That's pretty much my uniform. You know what I wish existed? So I'm terrible at all things visual, like terrible. And I've started to tell people lately that I really, really messed up the decoration of my current apartment. It looks kind of 90s because I chose like, oh, I like peacock blue. Oh, look at that. Oh, I like bright red. Let's add that too. And now it's just way too much color. Because you know there's the colors you like to wear and then there's the colors you want to live in and they're usually different. Um, It's true. True. Yeah. I had a lime green fluorescent bathroom growing up and we painted it thinking it would be this lovely pale sage and it came out vividly lime. 
But I just kept it because I would walk up, walk in there in the morning and it would wake me up. My eyes would be like wide as saucers the moment as I turned the light on and walked in. So it was a great wake up call. I mean, color makes a big difference. My friends in college painted their room like kind of uh, between lime and apple green. And when it was time to paint it back, they actually went to the Department of Housing and sat down and performed a song they had written about how we shouldn't all have to paint our walls the same color and don't they enforce creativity. And and they still have to paint them back? So the housing department was like, oh my God, we love our job, but yes, you have to paint it back. (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing, though. Yeah, that was very much our college. I think we had like a guitar, a recorder, a tambourine. (laughs) Like they worked very hard on this song. (laughs) But it's delightful. But you know, one thing that I wish existed is if you could kind of like FaceTime with a designer and be like, okay, I did this thing help can you suggest like what I should get that can be delivered because I'm not taking a piece of furniture on the subway um Mm -hmm. that'll make this look less crazy like wouldn't that be amazing I would love to be able to FaceTime with somebody who has good design sense to be like help I I have someone that does that I have a friend that does that I need help everything visual is so hard for me like I figure I got the word brain I can't really complain that much but oh my god I got the word brain no like very few people get both hemispheres working in their favor (laughs) it's true well they'd be a lot of people do online consultations for design and things like that so you can send them pictures and then they'll send you mood boards and tell you what to buy and where to put it I need someone who won't judge (laughs) Mm. (laughs) that's the key thing like I'm using that trunk club thing and I think it's just a fashion student who's there to be like yeah that's not the right word for what you mean this is the word for what you mean do you mean this thing picture oh yes yes very good (laughs) I need that for so handy your own personal shopper no it's so great it's like someone who will help me out and it's affordable and I don't have to go anywhere so I want that for um house stuff perfect that would be if someone comes up with it (laughs) so what's something you've changed your mind about in your time in the industry well, I've changed my mind so many times. There are just so many trends in the publishing industry, as anyone can share. You know, vampires, no vampires. Dystopian, no dystopian. I kind of hate to say that I will never look at or consider anything because everything comes back around. Um, it's kind of like cropped flare, flare jeans or yeah. overalls, which are totally back, and I want some. Overalls? Uh, I love overalls. Overalls, I know. They're so comfortable. So I would say that I've changed my mind about a number of things just in terms of what I'm looking for or what I want. It really does all come back around and there's always that one book that can change your mind. That's so hopeful. I love that. I know. That's really any sort of genre also. You can just change the name. Chiclet is no longer a thing. We'll just call it contemporary fiction. You know, whatever. (laughs) But it makes me so happy that all these like rom-com-esque works are happening now with a feminist bent to them. Like that is exactly what I want to read right now. (laughs) So fun. It's really such a fun time. Like if we could just have Ocean's 8 in a rom-com and make like 50 of them, I'd be so happy. I still have not seen that yet. So I'm going to have to work on that. It's so good. It's so good. And let's just say they don't go out of their way to punish women for doing things. Well, I have to say, I had the choice between seeing Ocean's 8 and seeing The Incredibles 2. And I went and saw The Incredibles 2 instead. I heard that was good. I heard that was good. It was super charming. So your husband has an unusual hobby, an unusual hobby that would be very convenient for me if you were my neighbor. So why don't you tell us a little about that? Yes. Well, my husband is actually a winemaker. Uh, a very convenient man to have around. 
Um, you have a hard day. He's got access to all sorts of uh, amazing wines. And perk of the job is also just travel around. So if he goes to wine shows, I can go and do my work in the lounge, or I can go and try a bunch of different wines and see what I think. And often I bring some back to the other winemakers and they do a blind tasting and guess and see if they they can figure out where it's from, which is really fun. Yeah. So he has, um, he works at a family business called La Riche Wines and they make Cabernet Sauvignon of three different kinds and Chardonnay and, yeah, it's been really, really fun to kind of see that side of the family business and also just to get to know a little bit more about winemaking because I'm not going to lie, before I started dating him, I didn't drink red wine at all and that's pretty much all he makes. <laughs> so wow. if, I, that, if that didn't fit, didn't end up changing, we probably wouldn't have ended up together. I like that that's something that can change though because I don't love red wine. I don't know if you remember, but like a lot of New York events have terrible cheap red wine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's why? probably why. I How do they do that every time? It's the one that you like smell it and it smells kind of like rubbing alcohol and you're like, oh God. But I just thought that wine bothered my stomach and that I didn't feel well afterwards or I would get a headache from the tannins. And then I just realized it was because I wasn't drinking quality wine. And if I do drink quality wine, then I feel absolutely fine all the time. I have not had even the tiniest smidge of a headache even since I started dating him. So... <laughs> It makes a big difference. Cool. You know, I feel like you're a character in your own book. Dashing editor on meets winemaker, falls in love, moves to South Africa and lives the life of, you know, dreams. It was kind of ridiculous just because I was over in South Africa for a conference and I was there with a bunch of friends and I ended up meeting him at a pizza place. Oh, I know, which we still go to to this day. And I, well, he asked me out on a date and we went for two hours, 6.30 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. The day I flew back to New York, we Skyped for two months. He came out for two weeks and then we just went back and forth. And here we are. Yeah. So basically I married a farmer slash winemaker. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. it, It turned out to be quite the adventure. Uh, But that's what's so wonderful about publishing is that, you know, our jobs, if you're a writer, your job is sitting in a chair and writing and it's pretty much all online, right? And that's what makes conferences and getting to see other people and these people that you know so well from online so much fun. And that's what's so wonderful about publishing is that you really can do this anywhere. You can tell stories from anywhere. And then we're trying very hard to make it so wherever you are. People can have access to you. I mean, you've talked with people all over the world, probably, in your meetings now. Yeah, all over the world. It's been really great. And we've had people from India and Georgia and any other number of countries, as well as the U.S. And so the nice part is that because of my schedule, I get all of the admin and reading and um, just like editing that I need to do for my clients out of the way in the morning. And then I'm available for meetings and whatever pops up on my email throughout the afternoon and evening. So it's actually been so much easier to be productive than it was when I was in the Flatiron building working because you have less distractions, if that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah, I feel like there's just a certain hum of distracting activity during the day when you're online um, here with the synced up schedule. But I'm so happy that you're in the time zone you are because people were telling us they had to get up at two in the morning to have meetings. And I really, really appreciated that they were willing to do that. But now fewer people have to do that now that we have um, experts in different time zones, which is very exciting. 
Yeah, it's really like I'm basically in London time zone. So it's really just like being an agent in an agency in the UK. And Irene Goodman has an office in New York and we're all super connected. And we have a lot of um, just different we have foreign agents and contracts and all the sort of um, just admin support that you need. So it's been really great because we're also um, connected via Gchat and phone and whatever you name it, um, even though we're not necessarily at a desk sitting next to each other. It's a really great structure. Yeah, I bet that's going to be what most agencies are like in the future as New York real estate continues to go up and uh, salaries continue to stay the same. The more people I talk to, the more people are already doing it, even if it's not obvious online. It's so funny. So many people are already working remotely and um, just finding that the lifestyle is better. You know, I don't love Amazon. I'll leave it at that. But I think it's pretty smart of them to look for another hub that is less expensive than Seattle. Mm, Especially since they basically made it expensive. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Real estate, man, it's expensive. Tell us the story of the first time you saw one of your books for sale. You know, it really is such an amazing experience when you see your first acquisition displayed. um, And that is fantastic. But the moment that really sticks out to me is just when I first saw my name inside a book that was on the shelf. So when I first started as an editorial assistant, I worked, and for quite a while into my career, I worked both on just regular fiction and a variety of genres, but also a lot of game properties. So I worked on Halo and Bioshock and Dead Space and a number of other ones. I worked on a lot of Halo books. And so the very first time I saw my name in a book was on a Halo book, in a Halo book on the shelf, and I was just so excited. It felt very official. I'm pretty much sure you're the coolest thing that's ever hit. <laughs> It it was really fun working with Microsoft. They are so on top of things. And I got to go out to their headquarters, I think, once or twice. And, yeah, they're lovely people. It was really fun. So what do you wish writers knew about things on your side of the desk? Yeah, the main thing is, I think, just that we are in this because we love it. Anyone who is in this industry, you know, if you're an editor or an agent, you're in it because you love it. Because this industry is so all-consuming that you would not do it if you didn't. (laughs) So that's the main thing is just that everything we do is out of just a love and a passion for books and literature. Um, But I can also give a few tips about querying and what what not to do if that's helpful. Yes. All right. Just a few ones that have been cropping up for me lately that I would love to pass along is first, please don't put your query in that typewriter font. It's so hard to read. So hard to read. I've never taken on anything that came to me in Courier ever. No, I have not either. And to read it, basically, I want to cut and paste it into another email, change the font, and then read it because it's so annoying to read in the typewriter one. Okay. So now I'm frantically like, what is my font on? Arial, Sanseris, something like that. <laughs> that is so funny. I'm like, oh my God, I have no idea. <laughs> Just when you're in Gmail, put it in plain text and then put it back in rich text and add your italics. Boom, done. Okay, you need to write that down for people. So <laughs> like for writers, like this is like when you're a waitress and you need to say the salad dressings a thousand times at a table of 12. Like <laughs> I had no idea. 86, the salad dressing. No. 86 the salad. 86 yep. the typeface. <laughs> <laughs> just just avoid the, the career new font. So that's number one. The second one is don't send your query as a group email to the whole agency. Eesh. Because if you do that, then there's not one specific person that you're calling out to respond. So it's very likely that and other well, it's very likely you won't get a response at all. 
um, simply because it's not specifically addressed to a specific agent. So well, that's, just that's interesting. I, I just heard back from an agency and they said one of your agents wants to see it. One of our agents wants to see it. They didn't specify? No. Huh. It was very mysterious. Interesting. Well, actually, I would say that there I do know of a few agencies who have a general pot that queries go into and they're portioned out from there. But most people are specific. Yeah. Then there's also that um, system, Query Manager. And it sounds so good, but I'm so paranoid because I just know that someday this is like all in my brain and probably completely false. So like, don't anyone think that I actually think this is going to happen, um, AKA don't sue me, but like, don't you think that they would eventually take all that data and like make it public? Oh, I don't know. I'm sure there has to be something that you click or sign that says that they wouldn't. Right. I hope. You hope. I don't know. I basically assume anything my computer slash the internet knows will one day be public. Oh, that is true because I actually had an author who, um, had had some bad experiences and wanted to make sure that her information was not public. Mm. And so I, I just like for peace of mind was like, okay, let me just Google this. And literally in two seconds flat found all her information, all my past 10 addresses. Ah! You can find anything instantaneously. It is scary. So, I mean, the comforting thing about that is if there are people with ill intentions they would already have access to it and have done nothing with it. But at the same time, it also freaked us out incredibly just to know how much is actually available. Yeah, I guess everyone's had my office address for a long time and I'm still here, so. <laughs> right, no, that, that, that was my comfort Yeesh. as well. Yeesh. That's so, scary. So I want to go mm-hmm. back. So we kind of got off there. Is there any other thing in the querying um, kind of think tank that we should all be thinking about? I don't think this is really for any of your listeners. I think your listeners are really savvy. And from everyone that I've talked to on just my appointments and everything, everybody's been so lovely and on top of their game. But I will say I have gotten a lot of queries recently. People have been saying things like, this is the best book you have ever read in your entire life. (laughs) That sort of overstatement is just kind of takes away from the seriousness and professionalism of your query. Rather than seeming confident, it just seems like you have a lack of knowledge about the industry. Just avoid those generalizations if you can. That's my last tip. And you don't have to say anything about how good your book no. is. Usually your it's, book will sell itself. Usually it's the people who are just like, hey, here's this book. Let me describe it a little bit. Cool, thanks. I mean, obviously not in that language. Who are the ones who actually have the good ones? It's the people who are like, next bestseller. And I know that's not going to be good. (laughs) I know. That's the sad, sad, but true statement. And there are consistently two people who say that in my query inbox. I have, um, I have a Gmail based system and it automatically tags certain key phrases for me. And next bestseller, there are always at least two. Uh, yeah, (laughs) I do think that's true. (laughs) You would agree that you should avoid that, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, if it was, wouldn't you trust us to spot it? And again, what also what makes a bestseller, if we could say two plus two equals four, boom, you have a bestseller, we would be doing it all the time. So a bestseller is such a combination of environmental factors, books, support, authors, support, you know, any number of things that you can never say that in a query and have any actual chance of being able to predict it. Just to be that guy, if we all were doing the two plus two equals four, how would our bestsellers fight it out? I know. We would be back in the same situation again. 
So tell us something that isn't nearly as scary or hopeless as writers fear it is. Oh, I would say two things. First of all, when you are pitching your book to an editor or an agent at a conference, everyone in this industry pretty much universally is super nice and really just is there to listen. So don't be nervous. I have had a number of people be just, just really nervous and it's really just going to be a fun and easy 10 minutes, um, professional, but everyone will be happy to listen to you. So there's that. And then the second one is just a rejection, (laughs) nothing to fear. Um, we always say that publishing is a marathon, not a sprint. So you just need that one person to catch your shared vision. And there you go. I also think if they go in looking for feedback versus looking to pitch, they'll be less um, less nervous because then it's an opportunity to ask questions versus pursuing. Oh, for sure. I always say, and when I take pitches, like ask me any questions about the industry. I'm here to help you. Whatever you need, you know, you've got these next 10, 15 minutes. So let's use them as best we can. You know, it's funny. I always say to my, to my um, screenwriting students that like writing is like wine. <laughs> you know, like you kind of mm-hmm. start in your palate. Your palate is, you know, it's kind of unfamiliar and you're just tasting, you're trying to, you're like enjoying the sweetness of it, (laughs) you know, but then as you move forward, you know, like you realize just how nuanced and how many depths of layers a book needs to be successful. And you kind of do get into those reds (laughs) that (laughs) are really full bodied and, you know, and then you can taste all those tiny little, you know, pieces of the earth in the wine. And I think that's what, what, what I've seen with my writing and, and my writing partners is that when they're at the level of the fine wine is when things really start happening for them. But when it's just sweet and there's not much depth to it, nothing's happening in the Mm. writing. And so it is a progression. So just like drink the wine, go through the progression of the writing, and you just have to trust the process. You just need Mm -hmm. to, you know, because people don't come out of the gate having all fiction, you know, like in place. They just don't, unless they're freakers. I don't know. No, writing is a craft. It's very much get your butt in a chair and write. And I will say that I have just noticed amongst my queries that I've received that have been really next level and amongst my the clients that I've chosen to take on, they tend to be the people who are like, this is my second, third, fourth, even sixth book that I've written and that I am now sending out for a query. And that's and the, that really stands out in the query and in the final manuscript, that polish, that practice, that ability to say, this isn't quite there yet, put it aside or come back and revise and revise and revise. You really can tell that in a query and in a manuscript. Yeah. It's a little bit nauseating. How much, how much mm. <laughs> the actual revision process is way more than most people think it is in my opinion. Oh. Oh, I think it's pretty much everything. You know, are you willing to kill your darlings too? Because at the end of the day, do you want your book to be the best it can be? Or do you want to keep that like one scene that means so much to you, but doesn't actually add a ton to the book? Um, You know, it always comes down to moments like that, unfortunately. Yeah, those darlings, those little darlings, those little babies (laughs) stuck in a word doc. Um, So if you had Google level funding, the ability and encouragement to spend 20% of your time making something that doesn't have to be a physical product, what would you make? Oh, um, at the risk of sounding like I'm on Miss Congeniality or in a pageant or something, I would say I would try to figure out a way to get clean water yes. access for everyone, especially since um, we're 
we are in South Africa and the Cape Town area is having a horrible drought. Uh, they're kind of coming out of it now, but it's been very bad um, and very serious and water restrictions and people are, you know, if you, there's a number of articles, I think, on Vogue and elsewhere just about the amount of water usage and women trying to how much they can wash their face and their hair and just even moments like that or washing laundry. Um, so just now that we're coming out of it, it just makes you so much more aware of the amount of water we use every day without even thinking about it. I'm from Arizona, and I actually had no idea where our water came from. It's in the middle of the desert, and I was, it just comes out of the tap. That's true. Most people don't know where their water does come from. Well, I think that's a wonderful project. Thank you. <laughs> Who knows? Hopefully someone will be able to um, complete that. I know there's a lot of research, but hopefully someone will be able to do something with that sometime soon. So what's one of your memories of your early days in the industry? Well, I think my first week on the job, I sent a package to Stephen King. I felt very starstruck. And then I also, I had a, received a phone call from the author, Anne Perry, and so I didn't actually really know who she was, and I actually looked her up after our phone call, but she had called because my boss had sent her a galley for a book to read, and it just was not her sort of thing, and she called to just ask why, why we had sent this to her, and I first apologized, but then also we ended up having a really great chat, and she was super nice, so those were just two really fun moments in my first week of work alone. So if you were a superhero, Whitney, what powers would you have? Uh, no question, telekinesis. I do definitely do not want telepathy. I have no need to know what other people are thinking about me or anything else. But telekinesis would be so convenient. Just bringing my coffee cup over to me. I figure I can probably figure out a way to fly if I have telekinesis too. So that'll be part of it. No, I just how funny you're just talking about Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> I know. What about you guys though? Oh, no one's, oh, wait, no one's thrown this back at us. I know. I want to know. Uh, <laughs> probably freezing time. <laughs> Put you on the spot. I think freezing time would be a good one. I mean, this is, this would be really weird, but I think it'd be very cool to, ha to have like all kinds of different arms, like octopus arms, and you could be like writing, cooking dinner, and you could be <laughs> like cleaning your kitchen at the same time. And it all could work just like effortlessly. But see, if you freeze time. Technically, you are all doing those things at the same time. Oh my time. gosh, you're right. Be with a normal it. number of arms. Well, <laughs> and with telekinesis, you could technically be doing all of that at once too. Oh my gosh. If you, you could multitask. So all of us just want magic to be efficient? Basically, yes. yes. Hmm. I'll, I'll live in Harry Potter things and then I can just have my wand be doing the dishes. You know, I mean, I would, it would, I think with this political climate, it would be cool to melt frozen hearts. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> so what's your number one tip for writers? Uh, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, just about writing like fine wine. It really is a craft. So first you just have to put your butt in a chair and write and then revise and revise and revise and persevere. And yeah, I just think that the really successful authors are the ones who continued writing and practicing and refining until they had something that was ready and um, really take the time to put that polish in and that thought in and that that emotional depth in. So my number one tip for writers is just put your butt in a chair and write. So simple and yet so difficult. Mm -hmm. The hardest part about it, right? So where can we find you online? 
Well, you can find me on the Irene Goodman Agency website and obviously a manuscript wish list. But uh, I'm pretty much on all social media. So you can find me on Twitter, on Facebook, and Instagram. Instagram is my favorite. I kind of took a hiatus because, you know, life changes and everything like that. But I'm looking forward to diving back in soon. And I'm going to do like one big dump post of photos from the last couple of months that I've missed and get started again. It's so much, it's just really fun and inspirational. So that's where you can find me online. Can you spell out your handle so we can find you? Yes, it should be just Whitney Ross on most of them, but it might be um, W-L-Y-N-N-R, so W-L-Y-N-R. And of course, you can book meetings with Whitney as well. She's up early, so usually 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. New York time. (laughs) So if you're an early bird, quite unlike me, um, Whitney is delightful, as you can hear. Thank you so much, Whitney. This was great. Uh, this was fun. Great chatting with you guys. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Yay, this was great. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. All right. Wishing bye. you lots of good wine. All right. Bye. Thanks. You bye. guys do. Bye. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. 